Well, hey, everyone. This is part 4B of You Lost Me at Leviticus, and my name's Norton Herbst. I'm a pastor at New Denver Church. Um, I'm also a history professor, and this is a supplemental or additional podcast to the study that we're doing on the book of Leviticus. Um, So in part four, we looked at Leviticus chapters eight and nine, and this is part four B, which means we're just going to go deeper into those two chapters and talk about a few things that we couldn't get to in the regular message. Now, I want to start with a question, and it's a question that's been hovering in the background, I think, so far during this series. And the question is, why are we even reading and studying Leviticus in the first place. And sometimes people who are new to church or new to the Bible or maybe coming back to church, um, sometimes they ask this question because they just don't know much about Leviticus. Uh, They've barely heard of it. And when we start reading it, it's clear it's a strange book and there is a lot of blood and guts. In fact, someone this past week wrote me um, an email and said, all of this blood in in Leviticus, it's just overwhelming me, right? And and I was like, I get it. It's been overwhelming me too. And so part of my goal has been to just acknowledge that. Yes, this is a strange book because it was written a long time ago in a very different culture. And so let's just jump in and read this book and see if there's anything interesting or useful or meaningful or compelling that's in this book. And and of course, I think there is, right? Um, And so I've been trying to share with you some of the things that I've found useful or meaningful or compelling, some of the things that I've learned. Um, So sometimes I get this question, uh, why are we reading this book from that place? But sometimes I get the question, why are we reading Leviticus from people who have been Christians for a long time? and have gone to church for a long time, and who suggest that um, when it comes to church, we need to primarily just focus on Jesus and Paul and the New Testament, uh, because this stuff in Leviticus is, is, is sort of interesting, but it doesn't apply to us anymore, right? It's just not relevant for followers of Jesus today. We don't follow any of those rules anymore. Now, we're going to come come back and talk about that question in another message or another podcast. What sort of rules in the Old Testament or in Leviticus do Christians follow today or not and why? That's a big question. We're going to begin to explore more. But if you found yourself in this position, if you found yourself thinking, why are we reading Leviticus? Why aren't we just reading Jesus or Paul? Um, Well, let me give you three reasons that I think it's important for us to carve out in this case, 13 weeks, right, to dig deep into Leviticus and not spend much time on Jesus or Paul. And the three reasons actually come from Jesus and Paul. So, number one, why we're in Leviticus? Uh, Number one, Leviticus is inspired by God. Listen to what Paul wrote to his friend Timothy. This comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 15 and 16, and it, or 16 and 17. And if you're a Bible person, you've probably heard this verse before. Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed. So, so just stop right there for a second, right? 
We'll read the rest in a second. But all scripture, and that could be translated every scripture, every book of scripture, every story of scripture, every verse of scripture, every passage of scripture, yes, even Leviticus, every single part of scripture has been breathed by God or inspired by God or comes ultimately from God. Which means if we ignore one book of scripture or one part of scripture by saying, well, that's not really helpful or relevant, that's not worth you know studying or talking about or looking at for weeks at a time, then we don't really believe what Paul is writing. We don't really believe this verse. I mean, if we, if we ignore Leviticus, then we should just scratch this verse out and write, rewrite it, right? Just rewrite in our Bibles. No, 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 Paul, you're wrong here. Some scripture is inspired by God, but Leviticus, you know, not so much, right? And I think Paul would say back to us, no, 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 no. Leviticus is really important, Because like every other part of Scripture, it is inspired by God. Second reason we should read Leviticus is because it teaches us. Even as followers of Jesus living 3,000 years later, it can still teach us. Paul continues to say there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, All Scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, if you want to serve God, and if you want to follow Jesus, because Paul was a follower of Jesus, then there is truth in the book of Psalms that will help you do that. There is truth in the book of Isaiah that will help you do that. There's truth in Genesis that will do that. And there is truth in Leviticus that will help you do that. So you can even go back to this verse that Paul says here, and you can replace the words all scripture with the simple word Leviticus. Leviticus is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped by Leviticus for every good work. In fact, this isn't the only time that Paul kind of shares this general idea. In the end of his letter to to the people in Rome, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, look at what he says. He says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement that they provide, we might have hope. Think about that. Everything that was written in the past. Hey, that book Leviticus, guys, that seems so strange to us, right? Where where we just want to read it and and glance over it and skim it and say, oh, oh, that doesn't apply to us anymore. You know, Jesus came and he did all away with all of those rules. You know, maybe he did. We'll get to that question. But Paul says, no, 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 no. Leviticus was written to teach us, to, to encourage us, to instill in us, even today, in his time, Paul was writing 1,300 years after the events of Leviticus, right? 1,400 years or so. Even us, it was written to instill in us an endurance or a perseverance and to give us hope. 
So Leviticus is inspired by God and it's useful for us in teaching us. But here's the third reason that I think we still need to read Leviticus today. Because it was Jesus's scripture or Jesus's Bible. And if we want to know and understand and follow Jesus, shouldn't we know and understand the words of scripture that Jesus was raised on, that Jesus was taught, that Jesus came to cherish, that Jesus actually lived by? When you do read the gospel accounts, the four accounts of Jesus' life and teaching, he quotes Leviticus eight times. In fact, one of his quotes of Leviticus is probably one of his most famous sayings ever, and it's a quote of Leviticus. He lives according to Leviticus, that's clear. There's times when he will heal someone of a skin disease, and then he says, hey, go show yourself to the priest, and we're like going, why would you do that? Well, that's because that's what Leviticus says you're supposed to do. We're going to read that in a couple of weeks. Jesus goes to Jewish feasts and festivals according to a specific calendar, and he does things there, and all of that comes from Leviticus, the calendar that's given in Leviticus. We'll get to that later. It's clear Leviticus forms part of Jesus' worldview, his beliefs, his practices. And so if I'm a Christian today, and I want to follow the way and the teachings of Jesus, and I want him to shape me and form me, how can I not read and try and understand this book that formed and shaped him, right? So, so yes, there are going to be times in this study or in this series where it's going to be hard and, and odd, and, and, and we're going to kind of be like, why did we decide to do this again? And we'll just need to remember, we decided to do this because God inspired Leviticus, because Leviticus has something to teach us, as Paul reminds us, and because Leviticus was part of Jesus's Bible, and if we want to understand him, then we need to understand Leviticus. So, with all that in mind, let's jump in. Chapters 8 and 9. And in this last message, I hope you listen to that part 4. If you didn't, you need to go back and listen to that first, um, because we're not going to go back over that today. But in those two chapters, we saw chapter 8 describes a seven-day ceremony where Moses consecrates the tent of meeting or the tabernacle and the priests who will serve there. And it's like a seven-day inauguration ceremony. And then chapter 9 is the first day after that, the eighth day, when the tabernacle will actually be used by the priests. It's like opening day. It's, it's, it's when this whole system of worshiping God and drawing close to him and offering sacrifices to him at the tent of meeting, it's when the whole system is launched and begins to be used by the nation of Israel. Now, uh, today I want to dig a little deeper (laughs) into the clothes that Aaron, as the high priest, is given in chapter 8. In chapter 8, there's this inauguration ceremony, and there's all these things that happen. And at one point, we're told he's given a new wardrobe to wear. He's given this new set of clothes, these priestly clothes. And these priestly clothes are actually described more in depth in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 28 and in Exodus chapter 39. That's where God first tells Moses, I want you to make a new set of clothes. 
God is telling Moses, I want you to make all these things for the tabernacle. And as part of that, I want you to make a new set of clothes for Aaron, the high priest. But Leviticus 8 is where the new clothes are actually given to Aaron and Aaron first puts them on. So I'm not going to read specifically from Exodus, but there's a lot more details there to explain these clothes that Aaron puts on in Leviticus chapter 8. So the first thing that's mentioned, um, chapter 8, verse 7, is a tunic. Uh, A tunic was just a short-sleeved knee-length garment. So think of a a short-sleeved t-shirt that you might wear today, but a long t-shirt that goes all the way down to your knees. And it's made of a fine linen. So it's a little bit nicer than just a normal t-shirt. It's made of, you know, picture silk or something like some some very fine linen. Um, And that's sort of the first thing that's described here in Leviticus. Now, one thing that's not mentioned are undergarments. Um, Those are mentioned in Exodus, basically a pair of shorts or, you know, boxer briefs that would have been worn underneath a tunic. So, Um, those are already presupposed. So the first thing that Moses gives Aaron is this tunic and, uh, it's made of fine linen. It's, it's probably nicer than any normal tunic that anyone else might have been wearing. So he's given a tunic. And then second, it says he's given a sash and a sash would have just been a belt to tie around this tunic to keep it in place. Uh, we know the sash was woven with fine linen, um, from blue and crimson, and purple wool thread. And it was woven in the same way and in some of the same thread and in some of the same colors and the same materials that the curtains of the tent of meeting were woven in. So there's going to be, and we're going to see this in some of the other clothes, there's going to be a connection between the sacred place where people come to meet with God and the priest's who serve there visually and aesthetically, people, when they walk in, will see things in the curtains and the furniture and the linens in this sacred place, and they will see that in the priest and what he's wearing as well. Uh, Third, Aaron is given a robe. The robe goes over all this. The robe is like a poncho, um, and it was made of blue and purple wool. Exodus says it was very intricate, and there were actually little bells and uh, pomegranates, not real pomegranates, but but pomegranates sewn from wool that are attached to the hem of this robe at the bottom. And we're not certain the symbolism of the bells and the pomegranates. There's there's a few ideas that scholars have there. Um, We won't get into that, but they they were probably symbolic of of something um, at the end of the robe. And then over the robe... Next comes the ephod, and the ephod was basically like a smock or an apron, and it it hung from someone's shoulders, and uh, it was made of blue and crimson wool with golden threads woven in. And this is interesting. There are two precious stones, and each of those stones has engraved on it the names of six of the tribes of Israel. So one stone has six tribes. The other stone has the other six tribes. Remember, there's 12 tribes. And the two stones are sewn to the shoulder straps of the ephod. And so the idea is that the priest, when he puts this ephod, this, this sort of like apron on that has these shoulder straps with these two stones on it, he is representing 
all 12 tribes of Israel, all the people of Israel, when he walks through the entrance to the tent of meeting, he is carrying on his shoulders the hopes and the fears of all the people with him. Now, the ephod is also uh, cinched around his waist with another waistband, a decorative waistband, another sort of type of belt. And then we're told a breast piece is placed over the ephod. Uh, This breast piece is made of gold and blue and purple and crimson threads all woven together into the fabrics. Um, And again, these colors and these materials are used all throughout the tabernacle, and they're the same with the priest's clothing. And and just, just pause and think about that for a second. Think about how bright and beautiful and majestic this blue and purple and crimson and golden, these clothes and these these linens and these curtains would have been to a people living in the wilderness. I mean, these people are, if you you have a chance, pull up pictures of the wilderness of Sinai um, or Jebel Musa. That's the name of the mountain that most people think is Mount Sinai. You pull them up and it it is dusty and bland and wilderness desert. And think about the beauty of these clothes that the priest is wearing. Now, the breast piece was like like a pouch, and it had pockets, and it it wasn't huge. It was about nine inches by nine inches, roughly speaking, based on measurements were given. Um, So it just would have hung over his upper chest area. And there are 12 stones that were sewn into this breast piece. And these 12 stones, they too represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And the book of Exodus says that he has these 12 stones on his breast piece so he can always keep all of the people on his heart whenever Aaron, the high priest, comes before the Lord. And then as part of this breast piece, there are two pockets. This is sort of the pouch part. There are two pockets, or or maybe there's just one pocket, we're not sure, but there's a pocket or pockets there that hold two other pockets. Uh, elements. We think they're stones, and they're called the Urim and the Thummim. And, and we don't actually know what these words mean. Um, it's why we don't have a good English translation. So it, it's the literal Hebrew words are Urim and Thummim, and those are just in our English Bibles because we, we don't really know how to translate them. Um, there are a few other stories told in the Old Testament where Hebrew leaders were seeking God's input on a situation. They didn't know what God wanted them to do. And it says they used the Urim and the Thummim to determine what God wanted them to do. And and it was often a yes or no thing. Like, should we attack our enemies today or not? We're not really sure. God, can you give us a sign? And so it says they pull out the Urim and the Thummim, and God speaks to them through that. So as far as we can tell, most scholars think that the Urim and the Thummim are like dice, right? Or, or, or maybe they're like stones uh, that, that have just two sides. They're like a flat stone with just a top and a bottom, like almost like a quarter, like, like a heads and a tails. And maybe there's a yes written on one side and a no written on the other side. We're not totally sure, but they're not used very often. But clearly they are these sacred objects 
that when all else fails, when we have no idea what God wants us to do and there's no prophet or there's no one that's gotten any kind of sign, we will use these Urim and Thummim, we'll roll them or flip them over or they do something with them with these two objects and somehow they tell us what God wants us to do. And, and as weird as this sounds, right? Um, and it certainly fits within the culture of the time that people had objects for divination, right? To, to understand the will of, of God or the gods. As strange as it sounds to us, like they're just rolling dice and saying, this is God speaking to us. Don't miss the bigger significance. Aaron is carrying the responsibility of being a mediator between God and the people. When they need to hear from God, ultimately Aaron will carry that responsibility. Now, finally, there's a turban uh, that the high priest wore, and, and this turban would be different from what the other priests, the other priests had headpieces, but the high priest wore a unique turban. There was a gold piece fastened to the front of his turban, and engraved on that gold piece were these words, holy to the Lord. And remember, holy means set apart, made unique, made distinctive, given a unique role. And Exodus says that whenever the high priest wears this turban, he is the one who is responsible for accepting the gifts that the Israelites will bring to the tent of meeting, the gifts they're giving to God. And he is the one who is responsible for bearing the sin or the stain that people bring with them that they need to be cleansed of. He is overseeing this process of bringing gifts and people being cleansed and forgiven of those burdens that they're bringing. And so in Leviticus, right, chapter 8, there's just three verses. And for us, it would be easy to, to just fly through these verses as if it says, like, here's some new clothes that Moses gave to Aaron. Put on these new clothes, right? But you can see how there's so much more going on. Each of these aspects of clothing were significant. They were important. Some of them had deep symbolism. They were rich. They were beautiful. And they were slowly, as Aaron put them on, creating a new identity for him. I mean, can you imagine what he began to do every single morning when he woke up and he put these garments on? It was a reminder that he had a unique identity, that his identity was one set apart for God's holy and sacred purposes. And there was a responsibility with that. There was a responsibility he carried. And that responsibility was serious and it was solemn and it was to be taken seriously. But there was great joy in it as well. There was great privilege in it. Think about the deep meaning that must have come every day as he puts these clothes on knowing that today I will be carrying people into God's presence and carrying God's presence into people's lives. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says the followers of Jesus are like this, that we are clothed with Christ. 
It's as if we're given new clothes when we become followers of Christ. And then in Colossians 4, Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. That's very Old Testament Jewish language, right? You are chosen people. You are holy. You're set apart and you are loved by him. As God's holy and chosen people. And then he says this, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, and with patience. Like the the beautiful blue and crimson and purple and gold material, like the turban and the sashes and the robe and the ephod, like those physical objects of beauty that Aaron would put on every single morning that would radiate something beautiful to everyone who saw him. You, as a follower of Jesus, you are like that. You are to clothe yourself every single morning when you get up. When you leave the house, when you go to work, before you interact with anyone else, clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, with patience. I mean, think about it. What if we had actual clothes that helped us do this? Or what if when we put on our actual clothes in the morning, we were kind of, as we were putting those clothes on, we were saying, okay, today... I'm going to be compassionate, even towards those coworkers that, God, you know, I don't really like and and tend to push my buttons. I'm going to be compassionate with them, and I'm going to be kind towards them, and I'm going to be humble, and today I'm going to be gentle. I'm not going to be abrasive and short with people. I'm going to be gentle, and I'm going to be patient. And when I clothe myself with these things, I'm clothing myself with Christ and I'm carrying his presence into every space that I walk into, into every place I go, into the lives of people that I interact with. I am bringing his presence. I am embodying Christ to them. And this really gets to the heart of what it means to be a priest in the Old Testament. Let's just unpack this this role of being a priest for a moment. And let me say first a couple of things about this today. Perhaps you grew up in a church or in a religious tradition that had actual priests. Priests that wore unique clothes, right? Wore a a white collar maybe and, and and and. and and, and unique clothes that set them apart as a priest. And and it's possible that you had a good experience in your religious tradition growing up with priests. Maybe there was a priest who was kind to you, who was compassionate, right? Maybe you went to the ritual of confession that's practiced in some traditions, and and it was actually a positive experience for you. You you confessed some of your sins, and the priest assured you in words of kindness that you were forgiven of those things, right? So maybe this brings up good memories or good connotations for you, but maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you have a negative connotation with priests, (laughs) Uh, Maybe you went to a religious school as a kid that was run by priests, and you remember them being mean, right? You remember the paddle, or you remember the punishment, or you just remember the high standards that you could never keep, right? 
Or maybe you've been horrified by stories about how some priests have abused their position. Maybe you even know someone who was abused by a priest. Maybe, God forbid, you yourself live with memories or knowledge of a, of a terrible situation, of a terrible scar, right? And so when we talk about this word priest, we have to acknowledge that reality that exists today. The, the, the terrible reality that, that exists today and, and, and even existed back then that anyone with this name or this label of priest carries a huge responsibility and carries power. Power always comes with responsibility, and power can always be abused. And so if this word or this idea of priest is is difficult for you for any reason, um, I get that, and we have to acknowledge that. And and so what I want to do is is unpack this word a little bit because it's so prominent in the book of Leviticus. We We can't skip over it. We have to really think about it deeply because priests play such a such a prominent role a priest in ancient israel basically helped people draw close to god a priest in a way represented people to god and god to people that's why we sometimes call them a mediator a mediator stands between to people. So a priest stood between people and God and helped people connect with God and God connect with people. And a priest really did this in three ways. And, and this is, you might write this down if, if you're in a place, not if you're driving, but uh, if you can write this down, this might be helpful. A priest really did this or lived out his role, and it was always a him in ancient Israel. Um, There were not women priests. It was just a different culture back then. So it wasn't because women couldn't do this or weren't capable of doing this or because God thought less of women or anything like that. Um, we, We know later that women are just as capable and just as gifted and bear just as much of God's image and can fulfill these roles in ways that men can, um, in, in, in all the same ways. We know that now, but in ancient Israel, it was just a, a male. Um, male priests really did three things. A priest spoke God's words, showed God's will, and shared God's grace. That's what a priest did. You came to a priest because you needed to hear God's words. You needed to hear God's voice. And God spoke through a priest. A a priest would speak words like this. You have been forgiven. You are now healed. You have been made whole. You have been made clean. A priest spoke God's words. A priest also showed God's will. You see the priests in ancient Israel teaching the people, here's how you order your life. Here's how you order your your possessions. Here's how you order your week, your work, and your rest. Here's how you order your calendar. Here's what you should do when someone wrongs you. Here's what you should do when you're sick. 
Here's what you should do on important holidays. Here's what you should do when you realize that you've done something wrong or you've hurt someone else. So a priest speaks God's words, a priest shows God's will, and then a priest shares God's grace. Time and time again, people will stumble and priests are there to say, it's okay. God still loves you. God wants to forgive you. God wants to make you whole again. After all, Aaron might have said this, after all, if he can take a nobody like me, and make me the high priest for the entire nation. I mean, talk about grace and mercy and love and choosing someone for for no reason of merit, right? I mean, let's just think about Aaron for a second. It's pretty clear in Leviticus that there is nothing special about Aaron except that he's Moses' brother, Right? There, there is no particular reason given for why Aaron is chosen to be the first high priest. There's certainly nothing given, no reason given that, that's unique about Aaron that, that he's gifted in some sort of way or that he's better than anyone else, right? In fact, Aaron screws up big time just weeks before all of this happens. Just weeks before he is inaugurated and ordained as the first high priest for the entire nation of Israel. Moses is gone one day there at Mount Sinai. And Moses is gone one day. He's up on the mountain meeting with God. And some Israelites come to Aaron and they say, hey, hey, Aaron, um, since you're kind of like number two in charge and Moses is gone, we have a question for you. Uh, can we make an idol of another god, not Yahweh, but a different God, a calf God. Can we make an idol of another God and start worshiping it? (laughs) And you know what Aaron says? Aaron says, "Uh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. You know, I don't, God gave us some commandments just a few days ago, and I'm not sure if there are any commandments about not worshiping other gods or not making idols, right? So let's just go for it. Let's make some idols and worship some other gods. And Moses comes back and he freaks out. And it's clear that Aaron is not an example of faith. Aaron is not an example of conviction. Aaron is not the the shining example of someone who can stand strong in the face of temptation or the face of challenge. Aaron is not the kind of leader that you think of when you think of strong leaders. Aaron seems like the most normal guy ever whose faith is not any greater than yours or mine. It's it's almost as if Leviticus is trying to show us any of us could have been Aaron. I mean, God could have picked anyone to be high priest, which is why a priest like Aaron can say to the average Israelite that's coming to the tent of meeting and carrying shame and guilt and and this, this sense that I screwed up royally, Aaron can look at them and say, I know exactly how you feel. I know exactly how you feel. I know the temptations that you faced. I've faced them too. I am just like you. And if God can be gracious to me, if God can forgive me, 
If God can heal me, if God can make me whole, if God can use me, if God can make me the high priest of the whole nation and use me to bring others to him, he can do that for you too. And in fact, there's a place in the New Testament that says that Jesus is like our high priest. Jesus knows our weaknesses. Jesus knows our temptations. And he too can empathize with us in every situation. And there's such a grace and a mercy in that. Do you see how a priest speaks God's words? How a priest shows God's will? And how a priest shares God's grace with others? And now do you see Why this elaborate ceremony of setting Aaron apart for this role is is so important. It's it's like in front of everyone, (laughs) he's putting on these new clothes and Moses is saying to him, put these clothes on and he's doing it and it's symbolizing, you have a new role, Aaron. You're not just normal Aaron anymore who tends to make all kinds of mistakes and stumble and fall and doesn't have faith and made that big screw up just a few weeks ago. I mean, I mean that's still you, but there's something new about you. You've been given a new role and a new identity and a new responsibility, and you now have God's power and strength and grace and anointing. Something has been transformed about you where you're still the old Aaron, but you've been made new to live out this new new role and Paul says in Galatians 3 that it's a bit like that when someone is baptized when someone makes a decision to follow Jesus in their life and they go through this this symbolic ritual of being baptized which is washing with water and that actually takes place in this ceremony of 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 Aaron being set aside, that that when we are baptized, we are washed clean and we have embraced a new identity as a follower of Jesus. And we now have God's spirit in us and on us. We're anointed like Aaron is being anointed with oil. Now we are given God's spirit and we're given the power that we need. And we're given this new role of sharing God's love and grace with others. And we're not going to be perfect at it, right? We're going to stumble along the way, just like Aaron would continue to stumble along the way. But we are now clothed with Christ, And we live by that same grace that we share with others. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's why the New Testament will talk about all followers of Jesus being like priests. So here's two questions I want to leave you with today as you listen to this. Here's the first question. Do you Think of yourself as a priest? And if not, why not? Right? You can speak God's words with others. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've sort of decided you want to trust in him and and live his life in your life and live out his mission, you can speak God's words to others. You can show God's will to others and you can share God's grace with others. You have been set apart to do that. 
And if you're not even sure how to do that, I think Paul's description is a good place to start, right? Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. You clothe yourselves with these things. Those are like the clothes you put on in the morning. You have to do that first. It always starts there. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's the way of Jesus. You put on those clothes and then you speak God's words. You show God's will. You share God's grace with others. And you do that in your actions, and you do that in your words, and you do that in your habits and the way you live your life. And sometimes it's really hard. (laughs) I mean, being a priest, it's like being a mentor or a coach or a teacher with others. Because you always see the potential in others, right? And you long for them to experience God's power in their life and God's grace in their life and God's healing in their life and God's wholeness in their lives. You can picture Aaron standing at the entrance to the tent of meeting, longing for others to come to the tent to experience God, to draw close to to, to him. And so as a priest, you're longing for that in other people, for other people to experience God's grace and healing and wholeness and and so you speak God's words to others and sometimes you speak God's words and they sound like this to friends hey you don't have to settle for that hey you're you're better than that and when you keep doing that you're hurting yourself Those are some of the words you might speak to others. Maybe sometimes you show God's will by saying this, hey, here's a better way. Here's how God can order your life. Here's the fruit of a life ordered by God. You speak God's words, you show God's will, and and ultimately you have to share God's grace which means showing God's forgiveness and compassion and mercy, which means that priests are always like mentors and coaches and teachers who are working with others and they see the potential in others and they take two steps forward and then they take one step back, right? Sometimes people take two steps back when you're, when you're trying to help them and love them and speak to them and show grace to them, but God's grace permeates everything. As a priest, you always believe that transformation and redemption are possible because, as Aaron would have said, if he can do it with me and he can put me in this role, then he can do it for anyone. That's what it means to be a priest, to have that longing for others to experience what you have experienced. Here's the second question. Who is a priest for you? Do you have specific people in your life who speak God's words to you and you listen? You've given them permission to speak God's words. Who show you God's will, who share with you God's grace when you need it? We all need priests. We all need, we might not call him a priest, but we we need those specific people in our lives who will do those things. So who is it 
for you. And if you don't have that, why not? And what do you need to do about it? Well, let's wrap up there for today. Um, Remember, if you want to ask a question about something that we've read or something that you think we've missed, you can always go to newdenver.org slash Leviticus. And at the bottom of that page, there's lots of resources on that page, but at the bottom of that page, um, there's a place where you can submit a question. And I hope that you will not miss the next message, uh, part five, because in chapter 10, Leviticus takes a totally unexpected turn that will raise all sorts of new questions for us to consider.